everyone. Uh, today we have Dr. Maura Estes, who is this, uh, who is supporting the NASA's Earth Science Office as a contractor since 1987 in the management of the science and education program as well as Earth Science Research. Uh, his current activity include uh, supporting a portfolio of uh, projects focusing on the marine environment for the ecological forecasting, programming and developing unique remote sensing products for water quality remote application. So, hi. Uh, hi, Dr. Mario Estes. How are you? Chris, how are you doing? Uh, doing good, doing good. Uh, so, we had, like, uh, since, since I... I, I like work under your guidance, I think in the fall fall 2020, we, we had a really amazing time to uh, dealing with the complex research work. So I would like to ask you about uh, like what is your journey till now and uh, uh, what what is your education journey and your, your childhood, uh, you know, enthusiasm to join as a research scientist and to becoming a research scientist? Okay, well, let me start. I um attended undergraduate school uh university of alabama i at the time was not sure that uh i wanted to work in the sciences or really exactly or engineering or possibly even another type of career so i ended up studying a pretty broad liberal arts type curriculum and trying to decide what i wanted to do uh, some of the classes i really liked were some biology classes um uh, physical geography as it was called at the time which was actually you know in part something that related to earth system science yes. um, anyway I, I got interested in urbanization and, and planning and different processes and dynamics that relate to how cities are built and uh, also the consequence of land cover land use changes and so I went over to Georgia Tech to graduate school and I got a gra graduate degree that was uh, based in environmental sciences uh, with a policy component too. It was actually through the College of Architecture and Civil Engineering program, the joint program. And uh, shortly after that, I came to work for NASA and I'm supporting the Earth Science Office uh, in 1987 and have been supporting that office in various ways ever since. Um, uh, most of the work has been uh, applied, uh, supporting the NASA Applied Sciences Office. Uh, I've worked on projects that relate to public health, uh, air quality, uh, as well as ecological forecasting over that time, all using various remotely sensed data sets to uh, try to gain new knowledge about uh, environmental problems, to help develop products and decision tools, to help uh, end users, policymakers, uh, different uh, individuals at agencies that are trying to, to improve society, improve the quality of life for people, whether it's better water, better air, or uh, you know, just better conservation of natural resources. Um, during during that period, I did decide to go back to school and pursue a PhD, which I achieved through a joint program actually through Alabama a &M, UAH and the University of South Alabama. I did field work in Dauphin Island, which is South Alabama. Studied horseshoe crabs, which is a really interesting uh, animal. Uh, they're a type of ancient mariner. They've been around for uh, millions of years uh, through a number of different uh, climate periods and uh, because of that, they're considered a sentinel or type of sentinel for climate change. So uh, hopefully by studying the history of horseshoe crabs and, and how they've evolved, we can and maybe learn some things to help, uh, to help people deal with climate change better too. So, uh, so I have a lot of interest in the ocean, especially in uh, 
um, different types of marine animals in the near shore areas. So I guess that's my history up to today. Um, so again, um, I've worked on a number of projects, more than probably too numerous to mention in the various areas that I described. Mm -hmm. So what what is your like PhD thesis was, like what is the title of your PhD thesis? Well, the, the uh, focus was studying, uh, uh, looking at the um, environmental attributes uh, and associated dynamics for horseshoe crabs in the northern Gulf of Mexico uh, to try to get a better understanding of the type conditions that allow them to spawn and forage and basically live and thrive versus those areas where that, <laughs> that uh, certain toxins or in environmental areas where that they are not able uh, to find suitable habitat. Uh, uh, some of the areas I surveyed uh, uh, among the barrier islands there from Mobile Bay, about halfway over toward the Mississippi River outcharge, had not, there'd been no formal surveys ever done for horseshoe crabs. Uh, horseshoe crabs are known to exist over in parts of western Mississippi over to parts of Louisiana and they're also known to exist in Florida but there was a gap there where that there really wasn't much data and understanding of horseshoe crab populations in that part of the Gulf of Mexico so uh, by doing surveys on uh, Dauphin Island, um, Petty Boy Island, uh, Fort Morgan Peninsula and Horn Island I was able to at least establish some foundation data sets to understand why some of these animals seem to prefer some of these regions that were in between the Mobile uh, Bay outflow and the Mississippi River outflow, uh, which is the, the fourth largest discharge of water from Mobile Bay uh, in, in the United States, and the Mississippi River being the first largest discharge. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of nutrients, a lot of sediment, a lot of material, pollutants that come into the water in those areas. and uh, so that's one reason we found that horseshoe crabs tend to not be so prevalent near those discharges, but actually in areas about in between or equidistant from those two discharges is where we found the most evidence of horseshoe crabs in the most live animals, where there was calm water, uh, where there was some protection from uh, uh, wave energy, which is something that's a, uh, that's a hazard to these animals near the shore. If they get flipped over, they can't get up and dig it off their back and so shorebirds and so forth feed on them and kill them. Um, so we actually gained quite a bit of understanding in terms of uh, areas where that we should consider conservation to try to help preserve these small populations uh, in this area. This is fascinating. So uh, like in your research work, you have focused on the which area, like in the Mississippi River, as uh, like, I think it's uh, passed to the center of the United States, if I'm not wrong, near to the center, it divide. It has a big river, right? Which divide in the, I think, uh, the East Coast and West Coast, right? Uh, so the, all the environmental contamination involved like, uh, like amalgamate with the water so that it affect the horse crabs and your, your focus is the what type of factors which, uh, decide the population of the whole calves near that river, right, if I'm... That's correct. We used, uh, we actually collected uh, in situ data in the field from boats, along mm -hmm. with actually surveying for live animals, uh, carcasses and moats or exoskeletons. They, they do have a moat or exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. uh, as these animals become adults, uh, approximately once a year, and when mm -hmm. they're younger animals or juveniles are growing, they have multiple exoskeletons. So we found evidence of spawning young animals in some areas and then we found adult 
actually some live animals uh, in some areas as well as uh, uh, adult uh, skeletons and, uh, and carcasses. But we were looking for or looking at variables like water temperature, water clarity, uh, dissolved oxygen uh, in the yeah. water. And mm -hmm. we actually used, we also used remote sensing uh, temperature data uh, as well yeah. uh, to look okay. at the larger domain as well as wind speed and wind direction because that influences uh, the water flow. Uh, the, right, the waves and the wind energy. Yeah. And we, uh, the lunar cycle is important in terms of the animals foraging and spawning. And so we did our surveys uh, based on full and new moons, the two week intervals. And we tried to also survey near high tide because animals like a lot of fish uh, species as well, fishermen know this, uh, ride the tides to come in near shore uh, on high tide. So we surveyed, tried to survey within plus or minus a couple of hours of high tide. We did it during the day just for safety reasons. Uh, some of the areas and so forth are hard to get to, not really safe to survey along the shoreline at night. So we just surveyed near uh, high tide on these uh, new and full moon intervals. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm sure like you did a lot of surveys in your, during I think during your PhD thesis and also uh, after your PhD, in, uh, like all course, course of your career, uh, you did a lot of surveys, right? So what is the main challenge you have found in the survey process uh, according to your research works? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. You talking about the horseshoe crab surveys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say, let's say first of all, yeah, yeah, focusing on that. So what type of challenges you have found in doing that, that surveys? Well, there are a lot of challenges in doing any sort of field work like that, whether you're studying <laughs> yeah, crabs or trying to do a different kind of survey weather. I had a hurricane one year. I couldn't survey oh. then. Sometimes uh -huh. you had, it was stormy or rainy, we were able to survey. But if it was too rough, I mean, for small boats to get out safely, then we would have to delay or, or not do a survey for that, that period. So, mm -hmm. and I mean, you can't include... So, so really, you just have a no data period as opposed to a zero. I mean, if you can't go out and check, you can't assume a zero, right? Yes. You can't assume there were no animals there, and you can't get environmental uh, data either on the conditions, uh, even though you could get some information remotely sense data, we couldn't actually get out in the field and check dissolved oxygen and temperature near the bottom and things like that, uh, water clarity, like we normally did. So you had gaps in your data, so you had to deal with how to to uh, uh, manage that in terms of uh, statistics and analyses that you would want to do. So yes. with this particular animal and type survey I was doing, those were some of the main challenges. I see, I see. So, uh, well, I, I, like, I think uh, that type of service took, took a lot of time because yeah, you were right. When, when the critical condition exists, you kind of, in your data seed, you have blank space and you have to deal with that blank space, how uh, like uh, one might use to just to extract, you cannot put a zeros, but uh, uh, like people has to use uh, some statistical methods to extrapolate the trend basically. Yes, so it's a critical important during research work. Yeah, that, that, thank you for the uh, highlighting that, that particular segment. So uh, let's move forward to your journey in the uh, teaching career at UH and also the work at NSSTC, National Research Space okay. Science. Center. Well, I, I taught um, uh, actually with um, uh, Dr. Donald Perkey, who's since retired. It was a uh, professor here at UAH, and mm -hmm. 
Uh, Dr. Cruz provided some assistance too and other faculty, but I was able to begin teaching uh, the first hydrology course in the undergraduate program, uh, basically a natural water cycle class as opposed to engineering hydrology, which focused more on design and uh, structures, uh, culverts, pipes, and so forth than, than my class. And it became a required class in the um, uh, Earth System Science uh, undergraduate mm -hmm. curricula for some of the tracks, uh, remote sensing and GIS tracks. And I taught that class uh, for a little over 10 years, started in 2009. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2015, uh, we also, along with uh, Dr. Cruz and, and others uh, in the department, were able to start a graduate class in hydrology. And I taught that every other year through uh, 2019 and mm -hmm. at that point in time decided to step back from regular teaching and uh, Dr. Lee Ellenberg is now uh, teaching both the undergraduate class and this year we'll for the first time be teaching the uh, uh, graduate class uh, as oh. the primary instructor. Uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Ellenberg uh, did help uh, with some of the uh, modules in the graduate class prior to, to this year. So <clears throat> a little over a decade I, I love teaching Yes. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it takes a lot of preparation. That's something I didn't really appreciate before I began teaching, but uh, uh, I really enjoyed that. And there's a lot of rewards to teaching and in addition to teaching. And I still work with students on summer projects and things of that nature. And uh, I support some students that are uh, research assistants on current projects, like you helped with a project uh, uh, last year. And so I really enjoy that. And uh, uh, some of the students, of course, uh, uh, use the work that uh, they're doing on projects that are funded to develop senior projects and capital projects and things like that. So I enjoy enjoy seeing them succeed and learn and uh, and uh, progress with their education that way. So yeah, I'm sure I uh, I'd also like become from student to uh, TA like uh, so I have to teach the labs. So uh, I realized that teaching gives like you have to now explain uh, the concepts in a simple manner to the students. So uh, you want to make sure you grasp each and every concept properly. So uh, it's, a, it's a rewarding experience, uh, I would say, during teaching. So yeah, that's true indeed. So uh, can you tell me what type of projects uh, you have done with the students at EUH or maybe in another, another universities or anything? What type of projects you have done uh, so far? Well, I mean, I've worked with numerous students over the last 15 to 20 years. So uh, projects have typically ranged from using remote sensing data to evaluate uh, public health issues. We, we've had a, a collaboration with the CDC Centers for Disease Control over in Atlanta for about the last 15 years. And actually that was one of the, uh, I guess, anchor agencies, if you will, that actually with NASA was responsible for starting the uh, public health uh, applications program at NASA headquarters. And we've been working with the Environmental Public Health Tracking Network. And so mm -hmm. we've worked with students to uh, develop uh, protocols and processes to effectively download and process different uh, environmental data sets that are of interest yeah. to the CDC and ep uh, epidemiologists to use to look at correlations between different types of um, uh, disease incidents or or, or uh, environmental hazards, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and how that might relate to different types of, um, 
of health conditions like, for example, poor air or ozone levels or air quality and how that might relate to different um, types of respiratory infections or asthma, for example, would be yes. one of the areas that we, uh, uh, that we did some work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> I worked with students on some of the uh, horseshoe crab habitat set, uh, suitability analysis. We did some mm-hmm. additional work on that with an, uh, an REU student, a, an NSF student over the past, uh, past couple of years. Um, I worked with students on uh, developing a conceptual model uh, that included remote sensing data to uh, study manatee habitat off Belize on a project mm-hmm. last year that was uh, uh, a quite interesting project. Uh, there was another student that was interested in trying to see if some remotely sensed data sets in, in shallow water could be used to evaluate the health of coral reefs. So. Uh, we did some work with that. This also was some of the reefs off the shore of Belize and uh, also some of the, the Florida Keys we looked at too in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in that incident, I've worked yeah. with students um, on different projects looking at remotely sensed data, Landsat, Modus, and Predictor, uh, in particular, uh, evaluating land cover land use change scenarios, uh, extent of change, change detection. And um, how that might be affecting areas in terms of rate of deforestation, uh, things of that nature, and what some of the drivers may be in terms of modeling, um, uh, growth modeling, looking at rates of urbanization, population change, and how that's affecting natural resources. Uh, one of the big, interesting, exciting things going on right now is natural capital accounting. And it's a way to start some methods are being developed so that that we can start to look at development proposals and not just understand what the economic benefit may be or the benefit may be in terms of jobs or, yeah. or taxes or that sort of thing, but also look at what is the real value of the resources that might be lost uh, for that development to occur in terms of, uh, are you gonna damage the water quality? Are you gonna change the flow of water? Are you gonna cut down a lot of trees? Are you gonna remove uh, sensitive uh, uh, coastal ecosystems or wetlands mm-hmm. or things of that nature. And we can now put a dollar value on those kind of natural systems and to help balance that against what the, the economic value is and hopefully make better decisions in the future on where and when to develop what. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, uh, like economical value of the nature of resources, for example, tree and water quality play a very vital role. And also because we are kind of all connected, uh, so we need pure waters and pure natural resources for our health too. Otherwise, the degradation of health uh, because of the couple of environmental uh, you know, problems, for example, global warming is one of the problem. Uh, yeah, we, we should take care of more uh, in the economic sides and stop to uh, industries stop to ruin like uh, ruin the nature resources irregularly without you know any rules and regulation so okay so these are the new projects uh, you, you are working on with the students uh, or, or the like on, as an institution uh, in the nasa like in the nsstc well these projects have been funded in various ways typically through uh, nasa programs that fund summer internships or mm-hmm. in some cases uh, yes. Students have been paid or funded by existing projects that I'm working on and other faculty. I see. I see. So it's been a mixture of 
you know, summer internship programs and existing research projects. Okay. So, uh, okay, let's go back a little bit and, uh, like, can you tell me what is exactly the earth science and how this differed to the, uh, you know, space science or any other domain? What are the main pillars in the earth science uh, which people or students who are enthusiastic in this domain might enter in this? I think one is the water quality control. What are the other type of main pillars? Can you talk about that? Well, there's a multitude of, which is one of the exciting things about earth, the earth sciences, I think, earth system science, there's a multitude of areas that students might could uh, focus their, their interest toward. Um, I mean, you've got the atmosphere, the air, uh, you mentioned water, well, you got the water cycle too, which relates to the atmospheric cycle, and then you've got the terrestrial cycle, which interacts with both the atmosphere as well as the uh, hydrologic cycle in terms of runoff and you got nutrients, <laughs> agriculture that's affecting the air, uh, as well as the, the quality of water in the streams and coastal areas, because you got a lot of pollution and, and nutrients, and, um, you know, excess fertilizers, and nitrogen, and phosphorus. So, you know, within those areas, there there's so many things that are of interest that could be studied. I mean, you, you could focus on marine regions, mm -hmm. you could focus on fisheries. You post just focus more on the land sea interface and coastal regions, which are some of the most highly diverse, highest biodiversity and interesting dynamics. Some areas that are extremely difficult to study with remote sensing data because they are so dynamic. You, they're changing so much. You've always got water discharging, the, you know, the, the color of the water is changing, the clarity yes. of the water is changing. And so there's a lot of challenges in, in studying uh, estuaries in those regions. Uh, there's a lot of interest in, uh, certainly in, uh, in deforestation and preserving our forests um, and managing them effectively. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly energy extraction, mining, um, you know, geologic concerns there. So it really, you got geology, biology, right? Mm -hmm. You got even yes. some components of civil engineering uh, yes, there that would be, that would be of interest. You got, uh, all sorts of oceanography, uh, you know, certainly marine biology. I mean, we we know more about the universe and the planets and the moons than we know about what's in our ocean at depths yes. thousands of uh, meters down. So there's a whole a whole region of our world that we really don't know much about at all. You know, there's new species there that we don't understand, have never seen yet to be discovered, uh, and there's potentially energy sources there that. Uh, uh, they, they could uh, do a lot of good in terms of meeting the global energy needs. And there's also potentially extract some challenges there where we could do a lot of harm to the ocean environment if we don't you know, extract those those minerals or energy sources uh, the right way. Uh, so yeah. it's broad and it's <laughs> exciting. And one of the cool things about that is that with satellite data, with remote sensing data, that there's so much of the world that we can study with that yes. and especially if you're interested in studying in terms of a large region or globally remote sensing data has tremendous advantages in terms of a you know high temporal mm -hmm. resolution you get data very frequently and yes. you can get data on large regions in the whole world and you know that's something we we can't do just going out in the field in a you know in a boat or um, in a car, if we're on land or some sort of vehicle, we can't do that. So 
remote sensing really has a lot of benefits to earth system science, but limitations too. If you're talking about mining or deep ocean and those yeah. kind of areas, then it's difficult. We need, we need different type of technology. We need different type of um, instruments and vehicles to help us go deep in the ocean and gather data and understand. Yeah, so is it the sonar will be the like alternative option uh, option to map out the uh, like bottom of the ocean? What is the structure at the bottom of the ocean? The sonar is one of the technology, or what type of other technologies or uh, you know the techniques the, the scientists are using right now to resolve this issue where the remote sensing data or the satellites cannot reach? What are the other techniques? Yeah, I mean, really, acoustics or sonar would be part of part of the whole acoustics technology is one way that uh, that we can measure <laughs> the uh, terrain uh, at the bottom of the ocean, and that's also a way that we can, um, uh, again, depending on studying how sound travels and reacts, um, yes. and also even even actually the nature of sound, you know, the different sounds yes. that we're hearing in the ocean helps us understand uh, fisheries better, uh, the movement of, of different type of species in the ocean. And in some cases, we're able to understand from uh, the sound and the signal and the, and, and the particular kind of sound, the type species that we're seeing, or we can actually identify that it's not just a school of fish, for example, or a certain type of ecosystem, but uh, or an ecosystem, we can determine the species of fish in some cases or even the type of ecosystem or type of material that's interacting with the sound. And something that a little more recent, uh, scientists have been studying the mix of sounds in different ecosystems as a way to determine the biodiversity and whether or not biodiversity is being lost by this whole collection and mixture uh -huh. of sounds that you're, that you're hearing, for example, from a coral reef system. Uh, we can determine if biodiversity is stable or increasing or, or decreasing. Oh, so so basically the scientists are determining the, so they are getting the sound signals from the ocean or, and based on that signal, they kind of uh, decide that what is the like harmonics in the sound determines the particular species which exist down the ocean. Okay, that, oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're still yeah. learning. I mean, I mean, certain systems and species have distinct sounds and as time goes by, we're understanding more yeah. about. Okay. Okay. Uh huh. So, uh, yeah, this this pretty pretty amazing projects. So, can you tell me what are the big projects which uh, you think might affect, like like what are the big projects NASA or NSSTC working on, which has a bigger impact, uh, you know, down the road in terms of the earth science field, and what type of projects you want to join in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a really tough question. Uh, I mean, NASA is continually working to develop better satellites that can provide, yeah. in some cases, different types of information, either at a higher resolution or something finer where we can see a system more closely, or the or in some cases even a uh, higher temporal resolution, though it's already daily data in many cases is already available with certain sensors. Uh, the PACE mission, uh, PACE, uh, uh, PACE, Plankton, Aerosol, PACE, something, I forgot what the C is. <laughs> I'll come back to that. The PACE mission, 
um, uh-huh. is one that uh, has the potential to offer new um, uh, new information to help us with a lot of science studies in some of the near shore areas that we've been talking about mm-hmm. uh, that are hard to study. You know, problems, you think about problems in the world and what's most important, and it's kind of hard to say, but I mean, certainly food security is one of the things that yes. is extremely important. And, and the university here, along with uh, Auburn University in Alabama, is working on a project trying to, is working to uh, do environmental studies uh, yes. and also to assist farmers in irrigating more agricultural land or getting irrigation systems. Uh, for existing agricultural land to help uh, really sustain uh, sustain crop yields, which sustain crop li- crop yield, excuse me, equals sustained food security. I yes. mean, the risk that we have in folks that are growing food or farmers all over the world, in some cases, is water availability. I mm-hmm. mean, you're, if you have a drought, you may lose your crop. If you lose your crop, it may not be food for certain populations. And so having some certainty that you're going to have water to sustain your crops and, and provide that you know food for the different uh, areas where it's being distributed is a critical need all over the world. So I think that's something that I'm involved with that's really exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's something I think that is um, you know critical in certain parts of the world. Certainly right now, if you look at the drought that's occurring in the western United States, it's, yes. it's, it's really catastrophic. And um, so when the drought is of course, severe enough, uh, even if you have irrigation systems, if, if your water supply becomes depleted enough, even then you can't necessarily meet the needs of the farmers. Um, so that's a major problem, I think, in different parts of the world and something climate change is exacerbating that I think is is really important. Um, you know, I'm not involved in any population studies, but I think, you know, worldwide population growth is a major concern. It's also a major concern. Sustainability of resources all over the world and something that our scientists are certainly involved in, you know, trying to help address that problem in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, um, socioeconomic uh, data archive center that uh, NASA supported at Columbia University provides a wealth of data on uh, population, historical and projected to help scientists uh, have that kind of data uh, in different parts of the world to try to help look at resource depletion and how that relates to changes in population or growing populations in particular. And so I think that's really important. And there is a there is a social dimensions track within the Earth System Science Program. Some of the students that are in that track, oh. I think, are interested in problems like this. Uh-huh. So here in Huntsville, this program, like at the U.S. Yes, yeah. oh. that, that's one of the tracks in your system mm-hmm. science degree program, in addition to uh, I asked me what sensing. I see. I see. Okay, that's yeah. Uh, like there are a lot of uh, amazing projects NASA is working on to uh, develop the earth science and uh, make sure the entire system and the uh, kind of uh, the harmony harmonies between the human and nature uh, is sustained over the longer period of time. So, uh, yeah, I'm totally uh, totally agree with your, uh, and I, I'm glad uh, this these projects are like uh, you know getting popularity and a lot of students are involved in this this type of projects is uh, is so vital I guess you know to develop the develop the uh, entire entire ecosystem very you know the habitat habitat must be a livable livable so uh, well and, and you know Tukri, as i probably should mention uh, it's, it's very relevant to your question i mean 
the fact that we've been working with the CDC, the group here and others at NASA for a long time. And there's a lot of interest in disease vectors. We've done some projects um, studying disease, dengue, fever disease vectors in Mexico. And of course we have COVID now. Yeah. Um, and uh, so just understanding any of the environmental covariates that may be uh, important in terms of the spread of different infectious diseases is yeah. certainly something that NASA data can be used for and is, is something that's of critical importance to the whole world, as we can see right now, because, you know, when we have a, a serious disease that is uh, not very well controlled, it tends to affect um, everything we do. It affects our daily life. It affects our, our health, our economy, and, uh, and certainly it affects in some ways probably our environment. Yeah. So also like the environment, uh, the entire, the uh, the change in the environment also affect this disease control and the transportation of the disease from one point to another, uh, or maybe how to control that disease. Also, hard science data and the NASA data will help in that that sense too uh, for the hospitals or the bigger research institute in health health science. Yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, can you talk a little bit about your past uh, publications, any research work or uh, books you have published? So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a little bit on books. Yeah. <laughs> um, I contributed to um, uh, some work with other co-authors here on a, uh, it's actually a, uh, it's a book uh, called Encyclopedia of Atmospheric Sciences, and I was co-author on a mm -hmm. section on urban heat islands. Um, yes. I also was co-author on a section on urban heat islands in a book called Our Changing Planet that was published mm -hmm. uh, actually in 07. Um, I was also a contributing author to a, a reference book for planning and urban design standards in the past. And I have a chapter on a book uh, that's focused on horseshoe crabs, on um, the work I did in the Gulf of Mexico. Let me see the, uh, remember the exact name of the book offhand. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I wrote a, uh, was lead author on a chapter on moats reveal life history patterns for American horseshoe crabs in fringe habitats. And that's a chapter in a book, uh, Changing Global Perspectives on Horseshoe Crab Biology conservation and management and that was uh, actually published in 2015 so those are some of the books so uh yeah, that's that's really nice uh, because uh, the publications uh like so you said you are you are also a lot of co-authors in the book and the publication so uh can you like suggest uh, for even like high school uh undergrad or any grad students who want to join and pursue higher study in earth science, like, or, or maybe in the future join in the NASA or NSSTC uh, or any other organization, uh, like what, what, what a suggestion you should suggest for that type of students who, who want to make world as a better place? Well, I mean, I know seeing my own kids and go through that period and decide what they wanted to do and yes. I guess I can recall my own struggles in deciding for sure I didn't I was not one of these people that grew up knowing I always wanted to be a, a doctor a lawyer an engineer I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and I think that's true of a lot of uh, a lot of young people but yes I think the thing you 
I would encourage you to do if you think you're interested in the earth sciences is certainly in your curricula and whether it's in high school or, or even early in undergraduate school, take as, take as many courses as broadly as you can and, and mm -hmm. really see what's out there. I mean, take courses in different disciplines to try to see what, you know, you really like. I mean, until you maybe take a course uh, at some level of biology or geology or climate or, you know, some aspect of the physical system, you, you may not you may not really know whether you're that interested or not, and you may not have any appreciation or enough appreciation, maybe I should say, as to what the possibilities are. I know that was one of my challenges when I was in that period, which is before the internet, but with the internet, you got a real resource here to find out a lot more, but you can imagine before the internet and you grow up in a modest sized town, it was really hard to know what you could do. You didn't yes. know what the possibilities were, and but now, I mean, cast your net wide, use the yeah. internet, uh, take, um, take some courses in different areas, try to get a feel for what the possibilities are. And, you know, the other thing, uh, you know, when I was like a lot of high school students, probably, you know, you just maybe didn't always want to take the hardest courses. You wanted to make sure you make good grades <laughs> yes. and, and, and that's fine. But one of the things that really, I think, separates students that are interested in, in, in the sciences in general from, from the rest of the student population is math ability. You know, take a good bit of mathematics, take some statistics. I mean, go ahead and don't be scared to jump in and develop some quantitative skills. I mean, that's going to help. That's going to only help you. And it's going to help you do more interesting analysis in the sciences and areas that interest you which is going to translate into you having more skills that is going to help you probably get a job easier, get into the graduate school you want easier, and just really to be more successful. So, so you know, take some math, take some quantitative skills, cast your net wide, look for these internship programs, even at the high school level and certainly at the college level. NASA and other federal agencies offer an awful lot of opportunities. Yes. And if you be proactive and, 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 Find a way to, to get in an agency like the NSSTC here or Marshall Space Flight Center or other NASA yes. centers. Work with some people, and that's going to really help you uh, do some interesting things. You'll meet lots of interesting people, and it's going to help you as you go through your, your education and try to decide what kind of career you want to pursue. It's going to really help you maybe better figure out where your niche may be. Yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's true. Like I would say, all the students have to uh, more active. So like right now, we have the internet in our our hand in our pockets, right? So uh, like if student want to decide that career, uh, literally they can they can even learn by you know self learning is also the I would say uh, most uh, efficient way to figure out which domain uh, anyone has to have, like want to enter because. Uh, Right now, we have Wikipedia or even the YouTube will be also the good resource to learn different things. And uh, another thing you have mentioned, the uh, math ability. Yeah, I, I want to highly stress that point because uh, as you said earlier, during the surveys or anything, you, you might not get the full data. So how that data you have to process and the, uh, you know, different equations on the, on the climate physics and all that. So if you have math in your hand, uh, it, will be, it will be very easy to be a type of problem. Uh, and one of my professors used to say is that uh, 
physics is the kind of uh, king of the science and math is the queen of the science. There you go. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, like, you... Uh, without queen you can like you know king is not king is alone so uh yeah <laughs> yeah math is queen yeah <laughs> that's sure that's sure so yeah uh, math mathability is so much wider so uh let's let's jump into the current situation about the entire globe so what's your you think about the, what type of challenges anti-humanity currently facing in terms of the sustained ecosystem. One of the examples I can think of is global warming, right? And also the uh, currently we are facing the pandemic and COVID-19 situation. Uh, like it's, 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 it's curse might be a different, but the spread is also depend on the ecological, uh, like the environmental change. So what type of other uh, possible threats uh, you think of for humanity in terms of earth science? Well, I think you you mentioned one of the big ones is climate change is, is obviously yes. a big challenge uh, mm -hmm. going forward. Uh, you know, you, you we, we know things are changing and they're changing more rapidly, we, we think, than they have before based on what understanding that we have. But it's still hard, I think, to know when tipping points may occur that where you would have some significant changes that start to affect populations and, you know, security and, you know, yes. economic issues and so forth. So um, that's a big one. I already mentioned population. I mean, I just think the yeah. demand for growing global population on natural resources is, is something everyone should be concerned about. And I think that really underscores the need for, uh, you know, the, the term you hear all the time of sustainable development or just sustainable yes. living. I mean, <laughs> Uh, I think we all need to do all we can to um, do, do simple things like recycle. I mean, to try to, uh, you know, manage a finite uh, resource pool of, of, of energy sources and mm -hmm. also to, in part, mitigate a growing problem of garbage disposal. I mean, the more things we can recycle, the less things we have to put in the garbage and it has to go yes. in a landfill or has to find some place to live. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and nobody wants to live next to a landfill, right? You don't want to live next to a garbage dump. And, you know, if they're not done correctly, they can pollute groundwater, which is where we get a lot of our drinking water. So it is critical, I think, that we uh, address those problems uh, effectively. Um, so, again, those are just huge drivers and there's a lot of other small i guess smaller concerns that that actually relate back to those two large drivers or stressors on uh, really the future security and viability of the population as well as uh, natural resources too um hmm. so you know I, I don't know probably just belaboring the point to go on and on about that but i mean you know overfishing is i think a, a big concern uh, I yeah. mean, our oceans provide a, a lot of food for the world, especially in coastal communities and in some mm -hmm. coastal communities that, that culturally, I mean, there's a culture associated with the sea with different food sources and it's getting harder and harder to sustain yeah. that culture and that food supply for those communities. And mm -hmm. um, so you not only have a food security issue, you're basically, in some cases, destroying a culture for indigenous people that have depended on the sea as a way of life and they they yeah. can't anymore 
mm-hmm. uh, small family farms across the country, in this country, for example, and I'm, I'm sure others too. It is harder and harder for, for that niche sometimes to be maintained. Small yeah. family farms are disappearing in many areas because they can't survive. And, and um, you know, we, the stresses of climate, the stresses of not having certainty of a water supply or being able yeah. to have sustainable crops is, uh, uh, is a problem. Okay. So, yeah. not sure I answered your question that well, but anyway. Yeah, it's, it's well enough. It's well enough. Yeah. So, uh, so do, uh, like to addressing this issue. Uh, so what what are the roles? Uh, not not the science student, but like I'm engineer. So what type of uh, role the engineers can contribute uh, to sustainability? Like what are the uh, like areas the engineers can involve? <laughs> Well, as you know, I'm not an engineer, but I can keep you on opinion. <laughs> yeah, what are the like, uh, like the small chunk the engineers can contribute? Because uh, like all of the like most of the engineers, uh, I'm assuming that they are like a little bit decent math math ability. You know, yeah, crunching the numbers, number crunching is uh, kind of our day to day job. <laughs> so, yeah, what type of areas we can contribute as engineers? Well, I mean, I mean, engineers are critical in numerous areas of course i mean there's a lot of talk right now about uh, about infrastructure in the united states and all over the world and engineers are critical to uh yes. upgrading and modernizing our infrastructure from mm-hmm. uh, roads to um, uh, water and sewer uh, mm-hmm. systems to uh, transportation facilities more modern airports um yes. and just new construction as our cities grow more modern Buildings, mechanical systems, more energy efficient systems, um, yes. more energy efficient uh, airplanes, um, yeah. and buses, and trains. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, engineers are essential. I mean, in terms of the space program, obviously, in developing different types of uh, different type of engines so that we can explore space and um, uh, outer planets, as well as going back to the moon and maintaining satellites in space for long periods of time and proper orbits yes. and all. So, I mean, I, I mean, engineers and scientists um, are both essential yeah. in, in many cases, yeah. not only need, but do work hand in hand to make sure that yes. uh, that we have successful, uh, successful missions and, and, and really successful outcomes to a lot of different projects. I think that it makes life better for all of us. Yeah, that that's that's definitely true. Uh, so uh, let's let's talk about uh, your personal interest. So uh, I know you are the ocean person, right? I like the <laughs> Which ocean. Type? Huh? I like the yeah. ocean. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so what uh, what are the uh, uh, like areas you have visited? What are the best places you have visited uh, till so far? And uh, what other 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 areas you want to explore? Okay, well, I, I, uh, I've been blessed to be able to visit many areas of the U.S. and uh, Mexico, part of Central America and South America. Mm-hmm. I have not, uh, not visited uh, Europe, Africa, Asia. Uh, and some of the places I've enjoyed the most, I, I mean, I love Hawaii. The, the Hawaiian Islands is, are beautiful. Uh, yes. I was able to visit mm-hmm. Oahu and Maui, and those are, those are wonderful places. Uh, there, uh, I've been to Costa Rica. That's a beautiful mm-hmm. country. 
yes. uh, natural resources and ecological diversity is just uh, uh, astounding. Mm -hmm. um, I, I live now most of the time when I'm not up at the university in North Alabama in Inlet Beach, Florida. That's a beautiful place. I really like being there. The, the Gulf Coast is um, uh, Gulf Coast of Florida is a, is a really great place to live, and it's a tremendous tourist attraction too. Um, I would like to go to Europe. Um, I, I mean, I would. I'm interested in going a lot of places in Europe, actually. In Greece, <laughs> Greece, Italy, uh, the Scandinavian yeah. area, Norway. I mean, places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go all over Europe. I would love to go to to France and England, Germany. Right. So, uh, and another place I've always had an interest in going is. Um, yeah. uh, Australia, New Zealand, actually French Polynesia. Uh, yes. That would be just a fantastic uh, part of the world to visit. And, uh, probably would suit my life yeah. of the ocean and warm weather and and fish and those sorts of things. So, so I think I would really enjoy going there someday. Hopefully. I can. Yeah, I would say uh, I would say you more like the ocean plus mountains. <laughs> <laughs> probably so, but. Uh, yeah, you know, like, in, in Hawaii, you got the oceans and the mountains right together. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So what type of other, like, uh, recreational activity? So all the people, like, as if as you become a scientist or any, you know, higher positions, it's critical to, you know, uh, be the, you know, the your mental health has also become more important because you affect a lot of people. So what type of recreational activity you have done to freshen up, uh, you know, and uh, when, you, when you get stuck in the middle of the research work, what type of activities you used to do? Well, that's that's a really good point. You're right. I mean, everybody needs some downtime and to kind of yeah. recharge your batteries. So, I, I mean, I, I have some hobbies I like a lot. I, I play some golf. Uh, Mm -hmm. I like to do that when I can. I like to get out and hike some. Uh, like I have a dog that I'm very fond of, and so Chipper and I will go out okay. and do some hiking in the state parks and trails. Uh, I enjoy getting down the water if I can. Uh, you know, but fishing, boat, or kayak paddling. Yeah. I, mean, I like doing that. I think that's really relaxing. Um, mm -hmm. I like music. I mean, I'm. Obviously, I'm older. I mean, I like some of the the oldies music, '60s oh, yeah, kind of music, yes. you know, the yeah, country the music and uh, stuff like that. You know, that yeah. kind of kind of music in in, in those times. Uh, so, so that's nice. And uh, I mean, and I do just like traveling. I mean, I work traveling is is fine. I enjoy that too. But just recreational traveling is nice. I, yeah, yes. it's a good way to <laughs> I think unwind. Uh, and just take a long drive and see some things or mm -hmm. a plane trip so uh so that's a that's about it i guess yeah. i see i see well um so any final remark uh, for the uh like u.s student or any other general student uh, who is like we already talked about a lot of things for the students but any final touch you want to add well you know, as a student, especially mm -hmm. uh, if you're a graduate student, I would say. As an undergrad, cast your net wide, figure out what you want to do, study hard. Yes, yeah. But they're like the, the students who are in the research path of third science. Because, uh, yeah, after graduation, like, uh, you, like 
you already decide to if, if you're in the grad school you decide to stay in that domain for at least 10 years or 10 to 15 years you know to build up the career what type of advice you want to give the younger researcher i would say well if you're if we talk about a grad student or somebody i know when i was in grad school or actually phd i know i had a um, committee member tell me one of those times when you're you have a lot of late nights, you're tired a lot. And yeah. In my case, I was trying to work while I was trying to finish a PhD. So that was even, even a bigger challenge. Yes. Um, and this particular individual said, just remember, it's partly an endurance test. Mm. And it is. Yeah. So you just got to hang in there and keep plugging away. You know, remember yeah. the story of the tortoise and the hare. Well, the the hare jumped way ahead and lost his focus, yeah. and then the tortoise just kept plugging. And he finally passed him at the finish line. So, I, I think you got to just hang in there, do your work, try to enjoy the try to enjoy the journey a little bit, even though it's hard sometimes when it's difficult. But don't just be thinking about the end. Try to enjoy the process. Try to learn. You know, try to not make it be drudgery. And you know, that degree and that job will come. Yes. Um, the other thing, I've been blessed to be able to kind of change my career path a little bit after 10 or 15 years, you mentioned. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, know you can work, especially early in your career. It's, it's not bad to, even then, to be getting some experience in some different areas. And yes. then after working for a period of time, mm-hmm. again, if you're, you've gone through a graduate program, master's or PhD, certainly you're going to have a should have some skills that would allow you to apply them to a lot of different kind of problems. So yeah, uh, go ahead and maybe explore some things with those first couple of jobs or postdoc maybe and then an initial job or two. Don't be afraid to make a change. And and then maybe 10 or 15 years down the road, if you kind of want to go in a different direction, you may be able to. Yeah, yeah. And I think I would say like if you if you are in the research work as I'm, I'm right now as a grad student, uh, like irrespective of the field, uh, when you do research, it, it uh, kind of induces the self-learning instead of the, you know, when, when you take a coursework, you already have a like particular syllabuses lined up. But when you're doing research, uh, there are a lot of uncertainties and the challenges. So I think uh, when, when any student enter in this area, uh, so it, it will train us to how to handle the challenges and uncertainty. You know, it did respect to the field, I would say. Yeah, so. That's right. And one thing I should add, mm-hmm. the worst mistake you could make is after you finish that degree, undergraduate, master's or PhD is to think your learning's over. Learning is a lifelong process. And if you want to be successful long-term and if you want to have certainly the ability to do different things in your career, you must keep learning. Keep doing, keep taking advantage of continuing education opportunities. Keep taking a class now and then that interests you. Keep Mm -hmm. learning. Yeah, yeah. Because that's necessary. The world's changing too fast. You have to keep (laughs) learning. Yeah, that's true. Because like, in the digital world, uh, each and every field is changing. Like maybe at least in the six years, six months, uh, any new things come up, you know. And if uh, if you are like in the specialized in that field, you have to keep learning. And I would say uh, persistence. Persistence is the key in the any any endeavors of the humankind. So 
yeah, persistence is, is very important in the turning process too. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Asus, for joining join, joining this podcast. I, w- I would I would have a, a pleasure to have you in my podcast. Uh, I had a wonderful time to learning about the earth science, what what type of challenges we are facing right now, and how the students can contribute in this uh, this endeavors. So, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chris. I enjoyed talking to you. Okay. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye.